0: Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode.
1: A chart of oil prices in the past year looks a lot like a roller coaster, and the stock prices of oil companies tend to follow that roller coaster higher or lower. But today we will discuss an energy investment that's different in many ways to the oil companies that you may know from their corresponding gas stations like ExxonMobil and Chevron. Today we're talking about energy infrastructure and MLPs, or Master Limited Partnerships. My guests today use them in their portfolios in ways I think you might find interesting. Joining me today are George Metro, who is a portfolio manager for the Dividend Select Equity Strategy here in the U.S. He runs a mostly U.S. equity portfolio made up of individual stocks that seek growth and income from dividends. George, welcome. Thank you. And Dan McNeila, who is co-head of our Target Risk Strategies in the U.S., he runs multi-asset class portfolios, investing in asset classes across uh, global stocks and bonds. Dan, thank you for being here. Good morning, Drew. Both of you have invested in MLPs. and Would one of you start by explaining what an MLP is and sort of what we mean by energy infrastructure?
2: Sure. So an MLP, uh, as you mentioned, is Master Limited Partnership. And as uh, the name implies, it's a partnership. And so rather than buying a share in a company, Uh, Investors purchase an interest in the partnership, and those interests are are typically called units. So you're buying a unit in in the partnership. And what really makes the partnership structure, the MLP structure, unique is some of the tax advantages that come along uh, with with the partnership, whereby the gains and losses of the company are passed through to the individual partners rather than maintained at the the corporate level. And so that makes them a little bit different than C-Corps. But you bring up an interesting point about saying MLP and midstream energy infrastructure. Um, there's a little bit of a short hand. Before
1: you go on, let me just stop you there. I, I want to go back. The, the, the share or the, uh, the the units are then sold
2: on a market or how do, how do you invest publicly in a, traded, uh, Publicly just traded, just like people would be familiar with stocks that they buy on an exchange, purchasing a share. In this case, you're purchasing a unit.
1: And a you mentioned a C-corp. What's, what is that and how is it different from an MLP?
2: So traditionally when people are buying stocks on the market, right, they're buying shares in a C-corp. So it's a tax structure that companies use when they go public gotcha gotcha so in the market today and historically i think many people have looked at mlps as a quick shorthand reference to discuss midstream energy infrastructure but it's a little bit of a a mislaboring a misnomer Uh, many energy infrastructure companies are mlps but there are many that are also c corps and so we think about the world more in the terms of energy infrastructure and then look a layer deeper into the tax structure it may be an mlp um, and taxed as a partnership it may be a C Corp and taxed like a normal corporation if you are buying in a different sector. Um, It could also be a partnership that has elected to be taxed as a C Corp so it gets a little bit nuanced and complicated and those partnerships would issue a 1099. So you do need to look into um, some of the regulatory filings to figure out how they're taxed. There's a variety of different ways but I think for our purposes, thinking about the, the universe, it's thinking about midstream energy infrastructure as the asset class.
3: Yeah, and I think just to add on to that point, uh, it might be helpful for investors to think about MLPs in some of the same ways you would think about investing in a REIT, a real estate investment trust, because both are similarly a tax advantage in that the entity itself doesn't pay tax at the corporate level, they pass through the income, and then the income Is taxed at the individual shareholder level and so there's that uh, benefit from the not having to have the dual taxation where you would pay taxes on profits at the corporation level and then pay them again once you get your dividend you get to pass through that income and only pay taxes once so they are both tax advantaged vehicles
2: and
1: when we say infrastructure we mean
2: pipes or what, what what exactly is the infrastructure so midstream energy infrastructure actually encompasses a wide variety of assets Uh, You're right that mostly the kind of the big ones people think about are those big pipelines, the long haul pipelines that are transporting a variety of hydrocarbons, whether it's natural gas or crude oil or NGLs from a source of supply to a demand center, maybe even thousands of miles away. But these firms, the midstream energy infrastructure companies, even though those are kind of the crown jewel assets, they own a variety of others. It could be uh, gathering pipelines out in the field attached to the wellheads. It could be processing facilities that are doing some kind of the initial, if you think about like cleaning or processing of the hydrocarbons before they're injected into the long-haul pipe. Um, They could even be further downstream. They could be uh, fractionation facilities or export facilities.
1: What's a fractionation facility?
2: (laughs) So a fractionation facility is a facility that takes NGLs, which are the natural gas liquids, um, they're usually transported, you can think about it, in a combined kind of a raw mix called Y-grade in the industry. And a fractionation facility breaks those NGLs apart into their pure products. So NGLs um, are broken down into ethane and propane, butane, chemicals like that. Um, Mostly the Most of the AINs. Most of the AINs, yeah. Very good. And Dan, um, I, I know that your team has looked into
1: you know something George was talking about earlier in terms of the you know, C-Corps and MLPs, and there's been a, a transition there in the industry. Is that right?
3: There has been a, a transition of sorts. The MLPs have come under fire in recent years, partly because there has been some uh, fairly broad mismanagement among MLP companies where they were uh, too highly levered and there was too much dilution of shareholders' interest because they kept issuing more equity to grow bigger and bigger. So there's some misaligned incentives. And when the oil prices corrected in 2014 and 2015, a lot of those bad practices came home to roost and there was uh, significant financial distress among MLPs that were the most aggressive uh players in in that sort of uh, over-leverage and over-financial engineering. And so for that reason, people have rethought the MLP structure and wondered what its longer-term benefits have been and whether people are best off and investors are best served by having a more um, traditional corporate type and go to C-Corps and have a a little bit longer-term planning where you can fund growth internally, looking externally for their growth and have a more stable, long-term-oriented plan for the company. And so MLPs have been somewhat looked down upon for those bad management practices, and and people are finding C C-corp structure to give them a little bit more flexibility.
1: And transparency as well, or, or not so much?
3: Well, the MLPs can be lacking in transparency because, as George was explaining early on, These entities are limited partnerships, and when you have a limited partnership, you typically have a general partner that's making a lot of the business decisions, and there are a lot of transactions that are passed between the general partner and the limited partner, and so it it makes it difficult to get a full, clear view on where the cash flows are headed and who's making what decisions and why they're making them and what conflict of interest there might be. So I, I think, broadly speaking, the MLP structure is less clear and less transparent than a traditional C-corp is where revenues and, and profits are flowing through to the, the primary entity.
2: And I would add to that uh, on the back of you know, transparency and governance issues that within the MLP structure, as Dan was mentioning, with the GPLP relationship, that and GP
1: meaning general, the general partner, partner versus the, the limited, limited
2: partner, right? That the general partner does not have a fiduciary responsibility to the limited partners. And so that sets up some of these conflicts that Dan was mentioning. And was one of the reasons that the MLP structure has come under a, a bit of uh, pressure, as he said.
1: And Dan, I wanted to ask you, as an asset class investor, how do you invest in these units or, or shares of, of these MLPs?
3: Yep. So we can invest in a variety of ways depending on the strategy that we're employing. Um, Right now, we invest in ETFs that uh, give us direct access to both MLPs and broader energy infrastructure companies. And we can invest in the same types of opportunities through uh, open-end mutual fund as well.
1: So they own both the MLPs and these S-Corps that are similar businesses, essentially.
3: They do. And for tax purposes, the vehicles we've chosen typically limit their MLP exposure to 25% or less of their total assets. And that's to um, make sure that the fund itself or the ETF does not have to pay taxes at the fund or ETF level and that they can pass through the income directly to shareholders.
1: I want to talk with both of you about how you use these in your portfolios. But first, as you know, uh, Morningstar Investment Management has one set of seven investment principles that is shared across our investment strategies. Uh, Dan, can you just remind us what those principles are?
3: So first, we start off with uh, that we put investors first when we're building our investment strategies. Then we're independent-minded. We don't like to follow the crowd. We're valuation-oriented in everything we do. And we're driven by the fundamentals, typically looking at the underlying cash flows of the investments, be it stocks or bonds, and see how those are likely to pay off for us from a total return perspective. And then we're long term. If we're going to be valuation and fundamentally driven and take a differentiated view, we need to be long term oriented enough to allow those differences from the general market opinion to uh, play out and come around our way of thinking. And then with the last two, we are low cost. We know that costs are important to investors' total return. And lastly, we build portfolios holistically, which means that the assets we own aren't individual investments or kind of an all-star team that the assets whether it's securities or different types of funds and ETFs they need to fit together in a portfolio context and offer different types of returns in different market environments.
1: I really like that all-star analogy. I'm going to have to to steal that. That's a uh, that's a good one because like you say, I mean like if you see an all-star game, right, the, the players don't necessarily play well together even though they, they probably are the most, you know, talented ones on the field, but they haven't sort of gelled the way that a team has and and, and sort of make use of of those Those synergies.
3: That's right. We're not building a team of all home run hitters and then have to put one of them on the pitching mound late in the game and expect that they're going to be able to throw strikes and get people out. So each investment we have has a specific role in the portfolio.
1: And can you both talk briefly about how you use those principles when you're building a portfolio? George, maybe we'll start with you
2: sure yeah we do employ a number of the principles dan was mentioning there and i would emphasize a few of them um, that we use within our select equity portfolios and first is to think long term and so we don't think about buying stocks or trading stocks we think about making investments in businesses for the long term we're also highly valuation driven Uh, we want to invest in businesses where their equity is trading at a significant discount to what we believe it's worth or its intrinsic value and we're certainly fundamentally driven so We like to understand the long-term drivers of the business. We're not just concerned about the upcoming quarter or what the stock's going to do in the short run, uh, but rather focused on its competitive positioning, the economic moat of the business, and the durability and sustainability of the cash flows and the returns on invested capital. So that, that's how we think about building portfolios from the bottom up and employing some of those principles Dan was talking about.
1: And do these principles, you know, somewhat act like almost a checklist? I suppose they sort of keep you keep you focused on on what you've kind of planned to do, rather than something that comes up, you know, an, a, an impulse that makes you want to trade or something like that. Does, does it, is a it sort of a behavioral tool to keep you on track?
2: Yeah, very much so. I think that we talk about it a lot um, in the sense of being process driven investors. That doesn't mean that you have a specific checkbox that everything has to fit and that it's a quantitative process by any means. But you do have, much like a pilot's checklist, things that you want to make sure are, you know, switched on and going the right direction before we're going to make an investment. Dan, you agree with everything he said or, or anything different for you?
3: I do. I, and I would just add that when it comes to being a valuation-oriented investor, that oftentimes the places we look for ideas are the places that have been most beaten up. Asset classes often run into trouble for obvious reasons, obvious after the fact. They're in the headlines of the financial pages frequently that are are detailing all the reasons why they've run into trouble. And typically, prices have fallen dramatically. And so a a steep fall in price at the asset class level is a signal to us that maybe we should take a look at it to see if investors are being short-term oriented and if the problems that the asset class is facing are more cyclical in nature or they may resolve themselves. Or maybe it's true that while the extent of the problems are fully well-known and out there, but the price has just been uh, too far driven down. And therefore, we can find a valuation-oriented opportunity that make the Asset worth purchasing,
1: and is that how you see MLPs today? Have they been beaten down, or, or what's um, what is it about MLPs that, that you find attractive today?
3: Well, uh, MLPs have certainly had their share of poor performance, and in many ways, they overpromised and underdelivered. And this was during a time when, if you go back to 2013, 2014, when oil prices were rebounding and oil prices had been more than hundred dollars per barrel. MLPs were growing fast. There was a lot of enthusiasm about the U.S. infrastructure business because U.S. production of oil and gas was growing strongly. And basically the pitch from energy infrastructure companies more broadly was that we can deliver a high yield, we can grow that yield at very attractive levels, and we're going to be uncorrelated to underlying oil prices. And when
1: and can you just explain that, what exactly you mean by uncorrelated to underlying right. oil prices?
3: So as uh, I think we mentioned in the outset, typically with energy companies, they are very sensitive to changes in oil prices. So a company that produces oil and takes the oil that they produce and bring it to market, when oil prices are high, their revenues are going to be high. When oil prices are low, their revenue is going to be low, and therefore their profitability would be low. So those companies tend to be very sensitive to oil price changes. Because of the a toll booth operator-like dynamic with long-term assets such as pipelines, the industry made the pitch that uh, commodity prices are not so relevant to this asset class because oftentimes there's long-term contracts in place that have set fees and perhaps price escalators at an annual basis and that they can have the same kind of uh, consistent positive cash flow that funds these long-term assets and everything is going to be great. And again, it's so,
1: so like with the toll booth. It, it's the toll booth operator makes the same amount of money from a VW that it does from a BMW, right? It doesn't matter the price of the vehicle going through; it still gets its uh, fifty cents.
3: Or whatever. that's right. So the pitch is that we invest a lot up front, build out this pipeline at great cost and regulatory difficulty. But once it's built, then the cash flow comes. The operating costs tend to be much lower, and prosperity and profitability goes on for a multi-decade period. So it sounds like a, a you know an ideal investment. The problem is is that uh, those promises were too good to be true. They had high yields, but when times got tough and it really centered around a decision in late 2014 when OPEC and Saudi Arabia in particular noted the strong increase in production of oil and gas in the U.S. and they wanted to take on the U.S. frackers full on and fight for market share. And they were going to fight for market share by allowing prices to fall and lower their acceptable price per barrel of oil and put pressure on these often independent oil and gas companies in the U.S. and try to knock them out of business because the belief was that cost basis in OPEC-producing countries is very low and U.S. still had a, a much higher cost per barrel and particularly with the fracking business because it was new, costs were still uh, pretty high and inefficient. And so they were at a clear cost advantage. They wanted to use that cost advantage to drive uh, U.S. producers out of business, bring the supply-demand dynamics back into place where they were more comfortable and then allow prices to to rise back again and so what happened was over the course of 2014 and 2015 and, and really into early 2016 as the price of oil kept coming down it went from over hundred dollars a barrel in mid-2014 to below 30 dollars a barrel briefly in early 2016, if you can imagine as a company, if you're producing that oil and you saw your revenues fall along with the price of oil, you're in a much more difficult position when it comes time to pay dividends or pay back your debt or produce profits. So it was quite distressing for the energy complex overall, and that distress funneled its way down to energy infrastructure companies. So while much of what they were saying was true, their high dividends often needed to be cut Their growing dividends became shrinking dividends, and it turns out that they were correlated to oil prices at these extreme levels because when oil-producing companies are going out of business or don't have capital to drill new wells, then the volume going through their pipelines goes down, and oftentimes that meant either the revenue went down or the assets that do tend to be more correlated to oil prices, that revenue is in some cases going away. And so in that case, the valuations became very attractive? Yeah, so the prices got hit very hard through that period and energy infrastructure assets did get highly correlated to oil prices at those extreme levels with the future of U.S. fracking really uncertain in the face of these challenges from lower prices and more aggressive pricing from the OPEC block countries. But what happened was is a fairly positive story for the industry in the long term is because oil prices did rebound and U.S.-based producers became much more efficient. They were able to lower their cost base largely on a need-driven basis where they didn't need to have much cost containment in an era when oil prices were $100 a barrel, but because they're largely technology-driven and they were learning about this, there were several opportunities to lower the cost per barrel of producing oil from these fracking situations in the U.S., and that really saved the industry and made it much more tough competitors for, for OPEC countries.
1: So at what point then, I guess, did the you know, prices and, and valuations become attractive enough to you as a, as a portfolio manager?
3: So I, for us, that first difficult period from 2014 to early 2016 and the severe price correction we saw through the energy infrastructure complex uh, put it on our radar as a potential opportunity. And we did make some early investments there. What happened was in 2016, as oil prices rebounded, so did the price of the energy infrastructure assets. So they had a very difficult year in 2015. 2016 ended up being a very strong year. And so that strong rebound in performance kind of cooled our enthusiasm about the asset class, more broadly speaking. And it wasn't until uh, the following underperformance relative to U.S. stocks in 2017 and 2018 that got this asset class back on our radar in a significant and meaningful way. I would add to that, you know, from our perspective on the bottom up, looking at individual companies, that
2: it's not necessarily just price and valuation, but it's also the characteristics and quality of the business. So Dan gave a great background there on, you know, how the industry transpired through this period of robust growth through then decline. And we talked earlier about a lot of the issues and the conflicts in the MLB structure. From our point of view, what has also happened that has made the industry much more attractive to make investment in today is the transformation that's been happening on the governance front, on the way the businesses are managed.
1: And Dan mentioned this earlier, the transition to C-Corps from from the MLP structure is part of that. That's
2: part of it. But there are also businesses that have remained partnerships that have transitioned, in a sense, uh, to a new model. And in the market, I think a lot of what Dan was talking about would be referred to as the MLP 1.0 kind of model. And during this difficult period of the last three years, whether you want to believe it's by choice or by force, many MLPs have transitioned to what we would call an MLP 2.0 model. And that means running your business with much less leverage than they used to. Having a distribution that is much more well covered and therefore reliable and sustainable and can grow going forward. Removing some of those conflicts of interest by consolidating the GP, general partner and LPs to really get true alignment of their interests removing IDRs, the incentive distribution rights, that were a bit of a problem in creating some of those conflicts. So a number of these issues um, have been taken away or or been removed and have really improved the quality from an individual company perspective when looking at these as investments. And one of the bigger ones is, of course, that these companies uh, were able to draw in so much capital during that period of growth and really became reliant on capital markets. And today, what we're seeing is a lot of the companies are able to self-fund their capex so they've been able to cut back enough to where they can grow internally and not rely on the capital markets you know in terms of issuing additional debt or additional equity as dan was mentioning earlier you know they became very prolific issuers and diluted shareholder returns and a lot of this has changed in just the last two to three years and so it's this quality aspect you know the qualitative side of the investment that has made it much more attractive today on top of the improved valuations.
3: Yeah, and I think I would add to that, again, from the perspective of a valuation-driven investor, the pain is usually obvious and upfront in the headlines of the papers when you're reading the financial pages. These changes that George is talking about, the governance changes, the, the bringing down of the leverage, the right-sizing the dividend payments, those don't make for sexy headlines. So those don't sell newspapers. They often happen over a multi-year period, certainly over multi-quarters. And there's no, like, trigger point that says, aha, everything's been fixed, we can go back in and buy it. But if you follow the industry and you pay attention to what's happening and you really do the ground-level work that George and his team are doing and that we do And when we're looking at the fundamentals of an asset class, you can start to follow and build some confidence that there's real change happening here. Now, um, it doesn't mean that all the issues have been resolved, but it does mean that we've seen enough concrete action to say that things have improved and they're on a positive upward trend and that this isn't the same industry that we were when we were in mid-2014.
1: So going back to our investment principles, this would be sort of a contrarian, independent-minded example. Is that right, that that essentially the market may have lost track of these companies and uh, in 2018-ish we were starting to look at these again because not only were they attractive from a valuation standpoint, but uh, the fundamentals were
2: there and also this somewhat contrarian element. Is that fair to say? I would largely agree with that. The investor sentiment... (laughs) It's been pretty poor, right, the last few years, given some of the return and performance from the 2015 peak on down. So there's been a little bit of an exodus from the investor base, and there's some investor apathy toward the asset class, so it's contrarian from that perspective, certainly.
3: Yeah, and I think this was a a very heavily uh, retail-oriented sector of the market because they were often sold as these yield-generating vehicles that appealed to retirees who wanted to generate as much income as possible from their asset base to live on those uh, dividends. And so it, it attracted a certain type of investor that, you know, once betrayed and they pulled back and sold in this difficult period, they're not going to be eager to jump back in and say, all is forgiven. I trust you now again, because they really did have a horrible experience. Um, And so that means that, you know, who knows where the next investor is to replace them, either they come back or someone else might need to come in and buy those shares. As a valuation investor, we have to be willing to buy when other people aren't buying, because that's the only way we can get a good discount. And, you know, essentially, we don't necessarily need to find who's going to replace that retail investor in the marketplace. Maybe it's the retail investor, maybe it's institutional investors, maybe it's fund managers that want to buy the asset class. But what we do want to make sure of is that we have a good handle on what the fundamentals are, what the cash flows are that are driving the returns, what the cash flows are to fund these future dividends, and what the long-term prospects are for the industry. And there's still plenty of questions there, but we don't necessarily need to worry about who else is buying these, who's selling these, when they're coming in, when they might be coming back because we're just going to let the work take care of itself and let the cash flows drive their future returns.
1: Uh, I want to talk to uh, both of you about how you use MLPs in your portfolios. George, maybe we can start with you. You run the dividend strategy. Uh, Remind me or or introduce uh, those of us who maybe don't know what the sort of goals are of the dividend portfolio. And then uh, if you would talk about how
2: MLPs fit into that and sort
1: of what role they play in your portfolio. Sure. So I think that
2: the dividend select portfolio can be summed up in a single sentence mandate, which is to build a portfolio of investments that generate a robust, reliable, and growing stream of income. So those are kind of the three mandates or the three keys that I think about within our mandate. So so I'm gonna stop you there. So the the stream of income is essentially dividends. Correct. And
1: robust, what what do you mean by robust? It's the size is substantial or?
2: We wanna be investing in companies that do generate a higher yield than the market overall. So today in our portfolio, it's about 4% in terms of a dividend yield and that's about 200 basis points above the S&P 500. So we would consider that robust, that it's double the yield of the broader market index.
1: And, and George, those performance numbers that you're speaking of are as of approximately the beginning of July, end of June, is that Yeah, right? end of the second quarter here. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking for the stream of income to be reliable and also grow reliable, meaning that it's not going to go the
2: wrong way? It's not going to decrease, right? Most certainly, that's what we would hope to avoid. But we're reliable. We're thinking about um, investing in companies that are rated wide and narrow moat by Morningstar Equity Research that tend to have low or medium uncertainty. We want these cash flows that support the dividend to be largely predictable and forecastable so that we wouldn't have a situation where the dividends would be cut. Uh, That's how we think about reliability. And then lastly, growing. For us, growing means above the rate of inflation so that we can protect the real purchasing power of our investors. So with inflation running uh, recently around 2%, we would think a 2% or better growth rate would ensure that purchasing power. So MLPs and midstream energy infrastructure in general, I think tick the boxes here quite well for us. The sector overall is yielding north of 6%. The energy infrastructure firms that we have invested in are all yielding around that 6% or better. So that's a quite robust yield. In terms of reliability, all of the firms that we have invested in are wide-moat companies that generally have, again, low uncertainty. So this is providing good reliability. And when we dig into the actual fundamentals of each individual company, we see very well-covered distributions, well-covered dividends, and low volatility, high fee-based cash flows. So these are the signs that we're looking for to be reliable. And then we believe that most of them can grow, probably in the three to five percent range, so well above our hurdle rate of inflation. So energy infrastructure in general fits very well, actually, in the dividend portfolio in terms of meeting that robust, reliable, growing mandate. So
1: George, that's as of today, basically, and and you know this may all change. This is all subject to change. So so correct. As of now, these are your views, but certainly it's all Yeah, to and
2: change. I would think it's actually kind of an important point to bring up, as a matter of fact, where. When you think about traditional income investor stomping grounds or dividend stomping grounds, you think of utilities, you think of REITs, and also midstream energy infrastructure. And when we look at that opportunity set today, energy infrastructure seems a much better place for incremental investment relative to REITs that are trading at 20 times earnings today, have a yield on average, you know, three and a half to 3%, so quite low yielding utilities much the same way on average the sector's yielding around three percent trading at 20 times earnings so these are valuations that we feel are, are fairly high yields that are fairly low whereas we really see the opposite in the energy infrastructure space with those again robust yields six percent plus and valuations down around nine ten eleven times cash flow so there's a pretty big separation in the market in terms of valuation a pretty big gap there and that's why we have favored the energy infrastructure space over reits and utilities all subject to change as markets move forward, but uh, today that's how we see things shaking out. And Dan, uh, how have you used MLPs and, and energy infrastructure in your portfolios?
3: Yeah, so but before I answer that question, I just to add on to George's answer, I think it's interesting, For my team, when we're managing target risk assets, we do not have a bias towards dividend-paying companies. We're willing to consider those assets as long as all other types of uh, global stocks and bonds that we might be putting in our portfolios. And so it's interesting to me that George, from his perspective, is finding this idea attractive at the same time as we are from our perspective because we – do have a global perspective, and we don't have a bias towards dividend payers or value-oriented stocks or growth stocks on a long-term basis, but we have, you know, identified some real change and some real opportunity in this one asset class, and so we've built an allocation to energy infrastructure asset class as part of our U.S. portfolio Broadly speaking, we think U.S. equities are unattractive. Uh, George mentioned some of the uh, high valuations in REITs and utilities. We would extend that to many of the growth-oriented sectors like technology in particular and maybe consumer discretionary stocks also look expensive to us. So we've been hard-pressed to find opportunities that allow us to earn a fair return within the broader basket of U.S. equities, and it's one of the reasons why, on a relative basis, these energy infrastructure assets look pretty compelling to us. And they do tend to uh, add some diversification benefit to our portfolios as well. They tend to react differently than many different sectors of the markets do to different changes, and so we think they're a really good complementary piece to our broad mix of equity and bond portfolios. And so would would they take the place of a uh, like a fixed income,
1: like a, maybe a high yield, or, or where where would they fit in the portfolio in terms of if you're putting this in, what are you taking out?
3: We think of them as as stocks, uh, as George defined them early on. There's some nuances that make them a little bit different from the typical equities that people are investing in, but from a volatility perspective, from a a drawdown or a potential loss perspective, these are not safe bonds that you want to be investing in. And I think, again, for people who are just yield chasers as investors, it's one of the reasons why they've run into trouble owning these because they focus on the yield and not focused on the potential outcomes that they might have over a full market cycle, where this type of asset cost could be up or down 30% in a given year. That's something that you need to account for when you're building a portfolio.
1: So you'd expect the returns of MLPs to essentially follow equity prices, largely be correlated to equity prices, but uh, what about interest rates? Is that uh, a concern as well?
3: You know, we've looked into that, and we found that energy infrastructure assets are not very highly correlated with changes in yields. That has been more true with REITs have been more sensitive, and whether it's the investor base or whether it's just more common comparison point for REITs, I don't know why, but our research suggests that energy infrastructure assets have not been all that correlated to changes in, in long-term interest rates in the U.S.
1: So they perform somewhat like a, an infrastructure asset that is, like we were saying before, these toll booths that, that just kind of sit there and collect the money as the oil passes through, basically.
3: Well, that's the, that's the best case scenario. And again, uh, like from a risk perspective, we need to be aware that things can go wrong and things will go wrong and make sure that when we buy the asset that we're buying at a price that allows – for some of those bad things to happen, and for us to still think that we're going to get paid a reasonable return over, you know, a multi-year period, and,
1: uh, is that the, the the key risk, or or what are what are some of the major risks that uh, you're looking out for MLPs?
3: Well, there's a number of them. I would say, you know, perhaps the number one risk that I would have is largely bundled under the title of uh, regulatory risk. There is a you know a strong movement against the production of fossil fuels for its correlation to global warming and the potentially disastrous implications that could come from there. And so on one side of the spectrum, there are people who do not want another single barrel of oil produced and want this to drive at really any cost a move to renewable fuels we're talking about production of natural gas and oil here and that does you know have some negative implications for for the environment and so from a regulatory perspective and it strays into the political realm about how much additional tax should be placed on to these types of companies and what your time frame is for investing in these asset classes because they're built to be long-term assets multi-decade periods and perhaps you know we're on the precipice of this turn towards much more renewable energy and you know bad things could happen to those who are kind of stuck in the old world of uh, the oil and gas space
2: and uh, george are the risks different at the stock level no i think quite similar actually um regulatory issues would be kind of first and foremost As they impact production, but production overall is going to be an issue. You used the analogy earlier of you know it doesn't matter if it's a BMW or a Volkswagen flowing through, and to extend that out, uh, if the highways are empty, or in our case, the pipelines are empty, that's going to be going to be a problem. So maintaining U.S. production, which has been growing in recent years and is expected to continue to grow, is going to be a driver for these companies. I would also mention environmental issues. A pipeline leak or or any kind of issue on that front could be particularly devastating to an individual company, if there was an issue on that front. And then lastly is um, kind of the potential for overbuild, really. So there has been a big period of growth in the industry. We talked earlier about this transition to MLP 2.0, and part of that comes with capital discipline, and the company is becoming much more disciplined on what they're willing to fund. And they need to maintain that discipline going forward. That's certainly something that we would be looking for. There's always going to be a bit of a leapfrog back and forth between production ramping and then more pipelines being put in place, and then there being overcapacity, and then production ramping even further, and it'll go back and forth. We just want to make sure we're not in a position where the companies are grossly overbuilding capacity that would damage long-term returns. So those those are the issues that we're looking at.
3: Yeah, and I think getting a handle on uh, just what the future is for oil production in the U.S. is going to go a long way to telling how successful these companies are in the long term. There truly has been a sea change in the level of production of oil and gas in this country over the past 10 to 15 years, and it's really remarkable. This has been you know, the strongest growth phase that we've been in um, for oil production, in particular oil production in the U.S. has more than doubled since 2008. So that's quite a bit of change in the past 10-year period. And previous to that point, we had been on a declining trajectory of oil production in the U.S. And with the uh, developments of of fracking, hydraulic uh, fracturing, and uh horizontal drilling that's really allowed us to access resources that were known to be in the ground but economically unproductive assets because they couldn't be brought up at a reasonable price All that changed a little bit over 10 years ago. And so now we're faced with looking forward at what the next 10 or 20 years might be as we're trying to evaluate these long-term prospects and how uh, stable that increase will be going forward, whether we can build on to the increases we've seen in the past 10 years into the next several years. And as George talked about the investments that these companies are making, most of them are made on the basis that they think there's going to be years and years and years of revenue to support the investments that they're making today. And, you know, we just don't know. The future is uncertain. You know, people talk about renewable power, and we've been talking about that for many decades now, and it's still just a small fraction of the total power that's produced and used by U.S. consumers every day. So how soon that takes up a more significant share of not only electricity but ground-based transportation, you know, remains to be seen. History would suggest that these transitions do take a very long time to evolve completely and to show significant share shift, um, and so that's going to be interesting to watch going forward. And what has uh, performance been
1: like lately? I, I suppose both through the you know fourth quarter slump and then the the rebound in in twenty nineteen.
3: Yeah, I'll start. Um, so oil prices were on a tear for much of 2018, but then in the third quarter, um, oil prices peaked and we saw a drop of about 40% in oil prices in the the later parts of the year. And so again, for all energy-related companies, that was extremely painful period. Um, the S&P 500 was down on around 20% in the fourth quarter of 2018. And so that didn't help the environment for stocks broadly. Energy stocks lost significant ground. And energy infrastructure lost in line with everybody else. The S&P was down a lot. Energy infrastructure assets were down a lot. And when the tide turned in the beginning of 2019, oil prices came back fairly strongly. Energy infrastructure assets performed very well. And stocks, did really well too. So there's been a little bit of a, you know, risk on risk off in the past few quarters. But if you look a little bit more closely at the data, oil prices have not been on a consistent upward trajectory during the course of 2019. They had a recent fairly significant correction in oil prices. And during that period, energy infrastructure assets held up really well, largely treading water in a period when energy prices, oil prices were down double digits. So I think that was an encouraging sign to us that investors just aren't buying and selling these based on what happens the daily changes in oil prices, that they're looking at the quarterly returns that the individual companies are generating. They're hearing about dividend increase instead of dividend cuts. They're hearing about more sustainable growth patterns. And I think slowly but surely they're, they're building their confidence back that they can be more sustainable profitable companies and not be wrapped up with a larger energy complex. Yeah, and I would add on the individual
2: level, there's so many idiosyncratic drivers and they do seem to be being teased out in the market slowly but surely. Uh, companies that have higher quality contract structures or more stable lower volatility businesses seem to have performed slightly better than the higher volatility peers. Some of the C corps maybe have outperformed slightly versus their MLP uh, peers or at least have gotten a little bit of a valuation advantage given they're open to a broader investor base and don't have some of these issues, uh, governance, et cetera, that we were talking about earlier. Um, but also the growth drivers, so certain businesses that have a better exposure to export facilities or export infrastructure or are growing in that direction. You know, Dan mentioned the huge amount of, of crude production growth that we've had in the U.S. A lot of this is going to end up potentially being exported, so companies that are positioned for that, uh, positioned for NGL export, are starting to see slightly better performance uh, than some of the peers that don't have those opportunities available to them. And just in general, companies that have the ability to continue to grow, so they have an opportunity set within their capex budgets and backlogs to continue to find incrementally attractive projects, those companies tend to outperform just a little bit better than those who don't or maybe don't have the opportunity set available.
1: And uh, are valuations compelling? Then, after you know, sort of at this point, midway through 2019, we've seen stock markets you know return to their their all time highs. So, how do MLPs and, and energy yeah. infrastructure companies look uh, look today?
2: I mentioned the relative uh, differences between energy infrastructure, REITs, and uh, utilities earlier, but I would also mention, as we talked about at the very beginning. You know We're focused on companies that are trading at a discount to their intrinsic value. And so when we look at this space from a perspective of the Morningstar Equity Research fair values, uh, the average energy infrastructure company is trading at a greater than 10% discount to what uh, Morningstar Equity Research uh, believes that they're fundamentally valued at or fundamentally worth. And that's in stark contrast to many other sectors in the market. Again, REITs trading well north of what we think they're intrinsically uh, valued at. Um, utilities trading at about a 10 to 15% premium. So there's a pretty big valuation gap, and energy infrastructure on an absolute basis looks attractive, not to mention the relative.
3: And I think the the risk for investors is to look at year-to-date returns and see the strong positive returns and think, oh, there is a missed opportunity. You know, with stocks, with many of these stocks up 20% or more, you know, you can say, how can I be a a valuation-driven buyer if I'm buying after a 20% increase? And, you know, I would just remind people that, Uh, the starting point in January 1st was a low point for the market and that uh, stocks had given up ground for months before that. And if you just go back to a one-year time frame, that energy infrastructure stocks aren't very different from where they were a year ago. And we thought they were pretty attractive relative to other U.S. equity asset classes at that time. And we continue to have that view today.
1: Very good. This is a very interesting asset class, and Dan, you made the point earlier that it's interesting both to you know an income investor and from a total return perspective. So, thank you both so much for being here, George, Dan. Thanks, thanks so much. Welcome, sure. Thank Drew. you, Drew. And thank you, listener, for joining us. I'm Drew Carter. Come back next week for another episode of Simple but Not Easy
0: is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Like all investments, MLPs have risks investors should consider before making an investment decision. Those risks include governance features that can favor management over other investors, potential conflicts of interest, and concentrated exposure to a single industry or commodity. Since most MLPs are clustered in the energy sector, they can therefore be sensitive to shifts in oil and gas prices. There may be advantages and disadvantages associated with MLPs, including but not limited to MLPs' net income being passed through to the investor, which is then taxed at the investor's individual tax rate and certain distributions being deemed as return of capital. Morningstar and its affiliates, including Morningstar Investment Management, do not provide tax advice. Individuals should consult with their financial advisor and or tax professional about this and other tax issues related to their accounts. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.